0: Alaykum, so last week we uh, we did the second verse of the tafsir of surah at-takathur which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says hatta al Until you visit the graves. So the first verse Allah azza says that this constant wanting more and extravagance is something which distracts you, meaning from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, takes you away and distances you from Allah azza wa jal, and this will continue hatta maqabir. And we said that Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala, and others from the scholars of Tafsir. they said that the meaning of visiting the graves, until you visit the graves, they gave a number of different interpretations. Some of them said that it is to remember the deceased, so meaning the visiting of the graves, they remember the deceased people who have passed away and to be boastful and proud of your ancestors who have passed away and that's also to do with some of the narrations that are mentioned as the cause of revelation for this surah as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Another interpretation of Hatta Zul'tumul Maqabir is as we said the physical action of visiting graveyards so often and so frequently that it distracts a person from something which is more important. So even though the Sunnah mentions as is authentically reported to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam encourage people to visit the graveyard because it reminds us of death. But the interpretation of that verse, they say, is that someone goes to the extreme where they're constantly in that graveyard or they're very frequently in that graveyard and they could be doing something else with that time. And the third interpretation, which is the strongest out of the three, is حَتَّى زُلْتُمُ maqabir" until you visit the graves, refers to death itself. Meaning that you yourself pass away, you will continue... To leave this lead this life of heedlessness and neglect, until you death comes to you and you visit the grave. And we said that the Arabs call it visiting the grave because it's not a permanent abode and residence. But as we know that Allah Azza wa Jal will resurrect people from their graves and bring them back to life. So because it is a temporary state, the life of the barzakh, it is called a type of visitation or a type of visiting. So and that's the opinion that Ibn Kathir rahimahullah taala chose and. Uh, mentioned Adwa al of Muhammad Al-Amin al-Shaqiti Rahimahullah and others from amongst the scholars of tafsir. Hatta azultum al-Maqabir refers to death itself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verses 3 and 4 uh, in which there is a repetition. Allah azza wa jal says Kalla sawfa ta'lamun Thumma kalla sawfa ta'lamun Can we pull up the Quran.com please? No, indeed you will come to know. No, indeed in the end, you will come to know. And I just want to look at the translation uh, for those of you that do or don't have it for the two, because it is exactly the same, more or less, with the addition of the word thumma. So Abdul Hadim's translation is: No, indeed, you will come to know. No, indeed, in the end, you will come to know. Uh, Muhsin Khan: Nay, you shall come to know. Again, you will. Oh no, again, nay, you shall come to know. Sahih International: No, you are going to know. Then no, you are going to know. It's like, rhyming. Mufti Taqi Uthmani, No, this is not a correct attitude in brackets. You will soon know the reality. Uh, And then again, you will soon know. Is that it? I think we've done most of the ones. I will leave Yusuf Ali and and Piktor. So, most of the translations just give you a very very literal translation of the wording. Uh, Some of them add something within parentheses or brackets, uh, just to give like an additional uh, meaning. But the general like translation would be no indeed, which is the word kalla. Kalla is translated as no indeed, right? The kaf and the lamb. the la, the lamb, alif la means no. The kaf is to add emphasis to it. And as the scholars of Arabic language mentioned the word kalla, and we mentioned this before when we were doing the tafsir of, of Surat al-Humaz and we went into the different ways and contexts in which it is mentioned in the Qur'an, so I'm not going to repeat that now, but the word kalla is to refute something, to refute and reject the notion that came before what is mentioned. So here in this surah, Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying that the notion that people have, that they will live a long time or they will live forever, or that they can continue to amass their wealth and whatever they're trying to gain in this life, be it wealth or be it power or be it land or be it status in the community or whatever it may be, Whatever that amassing is that is distracting them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that they think will bring them happiness and joy and contentment and tranquility and inner peace, Allah azza wa says, kalla. That is not the case. No indeed. Right? And so Allah azza wa rejects this notion and he refutes it. And it is done in the strongest of ways in the Arabic language using the eloquence of the Arabic language. Meaning that it is not the way that they think it will be. The reality of the situation is not what they deem it to be. That they can continue to amass this type of, or gather this type of worldly adornment and it won't have any type of, um, you know, any type of, of impact upon them in the long term. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, kan la sawfa ta'alamun. The word sofa in the Arabic language is for something which is to come in the future. It is to denote something which is to come in the future. So in the Arabic language you have three tenses. Right, three tenses. The first is the past tense. The second is the present stroke future tense, which are often mentioned together as one. And the third is the order tense, a command, right, the command tense. So in Arabic language, you say kataba, which means he wrote in the past tense. The present form is yaktubu. And then the command is "uktub." to read. Qara'a is the past tense. The present tense is Yakra'u. And the, the command would be Iqra'o, right? Now in the present tense, how do you know then if it's something which is present, present or whether it's future present? Right? You add, there's two ways in the Arabic language. The first of them is you add the letter Seen. The letter Seen. The Seen before a verb denotes that it's for something in the future. For example, Allah says, سَيَقُولُ السُّفَهَاءُ مِنَ النَّاسِ right? سيقول. يقول is the present tense verb. The scene, once added into it, means that it's something which will happen in the close future. The second form of changing the present tense into the future tense is by using the word سَوْفَ as we see in this particular verse. Sofa ta'lamun. The sawfa is that it's something which will they will come to know in the future. Why? Because Allah Azza wa as he mentions in, surat, uh, in sorry, in the second verse of this surah, when will that reality become apparent to those people? When they die and they go into their graves. So therefore it's not a reality that becomes apparent immediately. And so Allah Azza wa doesn't say no they will know. Meaning it's not something now that the people realize and they know. It's something that they will come to know in the future when death comes to them, when they enter into their graves, when they are questioned by the angels of the grave, when they are resurrected on Yom Al-Qiyamah, they will come to know. So Allah uses the word sofa. And Imam rahimahullah Taala, in his book Al-Itqan, which deals with, uh, as we've mentioned before, the sciences of the Quran, he says that the difference between "seen" and sofa amongst the Basri school of Arabic grammar, right? Does anyone know what that means? without making this into a tedious Arabic grammar lesson. um, In Arabic grammar, so just like in in fiqh, you have right? you have different schools of Islamic law. In Arabic grammar, you also have different schools of Arabic grammar. You have the Basri school and the Kufi school, Basra and Kufa, which are very close together geographically, they're very close together. However, they're the two main bodies of schools. There are others, there's the Baghdad school and the Andalus school and, and other ones as well. But the two main ones, Basra and Kufa. And often you'll find in the books of Tafsir, when they're going through linguistic stuff, you'll find, for example, Imam tabri says, and the, and the grammarians of the Basri school said this, and the Kufi school said that, and so on. And what they're referring to are those two kind of methodologies of studying the Arabic language. The Basri school, you have the likes of Sibawayh and his students, al Akhfesh, and others. And the Kufi school is Al-Kisai. who was also one of the Qurra, one of the ten Qurra, that, we, that is Mutawatir, his name is Al-Kisai, he's also a famous scholar of, of, of Arabic grammar, right? and he's a contemporary to Sibowe. So there's like two, two different like methodologies or schools of Arabic grammar. The main difference between them, or one of the main differences, is the Basris, the Basra school of Arabic grammar, Arabic language, is very strict in terms of what it adopts as the arabic language so how do they realize what is pure arabic language what is fusha what is classical arabic language they use the quran they use the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then they use what the arabs speak with their language their literature their poetry right that's what they use to say that actually in the Arabic language, you can say this and if you say it like this, this is what it means and that's what it doesn't mean, right? And we, we've done this before throughout our tafsir without going through the technical details when I say, for example, that that word can have multiple meanings, right? Depending on the context, that's based on Arabic grammar or it's based on, on the Quran or Sunnah or Arabic poetry in which it's been mentioned in that context. And so they used that as an evidence to show that the Arabs used to speak the language in that way. Because obviously the Qur'an, Allah Azza wa Jalla, revealed it in the language of the Arabs, in the way that they used it and in a way that was understood to them. So the Basris, when it comes to this stuff, they're very strict. They don't just take any poetry. They have very strict conditions as the type of poetry that they will accept has to come from certain people and certain groups and so on. And it's something which they have stringent conditions that they attach to so that it meets the level of what is considered pure or classical Arabic. The Kufi school, on the other hand, the difference between them is, the Kufis are much more laxed, much more open. Even if it's something which a Bedouin mentioned, and you know, some mentioned in some poetry that some Bedouin recited whenever he recited it, they'll use that as an evidence. They'll use that as justification, that therefore it can be said in this way or in that way. and that's the main difference between those two, uh, two schools. So, al-Imam as siyyuti ta'ala, the point here being, is the scene and the sofa, when you add it to the present tense, both of them denote something that's going to take place in the future. However, is the scene and the sofa the same? Meaning, are both of them exactly the same in meaning? Or does one mean near future and one mean distant future? Right, that's the difference here. Al-Imam as siyyuti ta'ala, says that the Basriyun say that the sofa, is for the distant future and the seen is for near future. That is the difference between the two. And he says that is from the eloquence of the Arabic language. And in the Arabic language, they have a qa'ida, a principle that says fil mabna, ala fil that the more words that are added to the root word, the more meaning that is added as well. right? So, for example, when you say ghafir, um, but then you say ghafur or ghafar. All of them mean the same thing, right? They're all referring to Allah جل, as being forgiving. But Ghaffar and Ghafur have extra letters added to them than Ghafir. And it is to show that it is most merciful, right? He is most merciful because it adds more meaning with the, sorry, most forgiving, right? And the same with mercy as well. Rahma, Rahim, Rahim, Rahman, right? And that's why many of the scholars in the tafsir of Rahman Rahim say, Ar Rahman is a general mercy that extends to all of Allah's creation. Ar-Rahim is something which is exclusive to the believing servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ar-Rahman has more letters in it. And because it is more letters that are added to the root word, the meaning therefore becomes more comprehensive, more general, greater in that regard as well. The same thing here. The scene is only a letter. The sofa is three. So the sofa is for distant future, whereas the scene is something which will be present. And they use as this uh, they use for this two two things to show that it is more eloquent the sofa. Number one is that in the Arabic language, you can add a uh, a ta'kid or a, an emphasis on the sofa, but you can't add it to the scene. And the way in the Arabic language that you add emphasis to the sofa is you add a lam to the beginning of sofa. Like for example in Surah Al-Duha when Allah Azzawajal says, "Wala soufa fatarda." And surely your Lord shall give you, right, in the future, but the lamb adds emphasis to it, verily, indeed, surely, right. Whereas you can't do that with the lamb, with the scene. You can't say, it doesn't even like, you know, it's very difficult to say. And actually, some of the the scholars of tafsir say, that's the reason why you can't add the lamb to the scene, because it's just very difficult to say. It's just, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's very difficult to pronounce. And the Arabs have this general thing that if it's difficult to pronounce, just do away with it. Right? Find something which is easier. They add the lamb to the sofa instead. So, anyway, that's one. Number two, because also it shows, they use the example, for example, in the Quran when Allah Azzawajal says, When Allah Azzawajal is speaking about the verses, of changing the direction of prayer, the Qibla. In the time of the Prophet from from the change from Baytul Maqdis to the Haram in Makkah, right, to the Kaaba. And Allah Azza wa says that the people will say, the foolish from amongst them will say, what caused him to change the direction of his prayer, right? They will soon say, why will they soon say? Because that command of Allah Azza is going to be revealed now, and then they will start to say. So it's not something which is in the distant future, it's not something years ahead, or something, you know, many years to come, it is now, say very soon they will say this. So the scene is done for something which is near future. Whereas the sofa is something which comes very far ahead, right? When a person dies in their grave on Al qiyamah. And so Allah Azza wa Jal here says, kalla sofa ta'lamun, right? Kalla sofa, and the sofa is to show that it is something which is further on in time. And as Zarkashi mentions the same thing in terms of the difference between the scene and the sofa, and as the Makhshari and others from the scholars of Quran and Tafsir. So, Allah Azza wa when He says here, "Kalla Sofa ta'lamun," they will surely come to know. Right? Indeed, no, indeed, they will come to know. Allah Azza wa is referring to a knowledge that those people will have only in their grave, or at the time of their death. And clearly these are verses that are speaking about those people who don't take heed in this life, right? They are distracted from Allah Azza wa they're heedless of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala and they continue to remain in that state of heedlessness and neglect until that time comes when it becomes apparent for them, but it will be too late by then. Abdullah ibn Abbas therefore radiallahu anhuma, said, Kalla sawfa talamun refers to when people will enter into their graves. When you enter into your graves, you will come to know. Meaning that's when reality will become apparent. When everything else, those veils will be lifted, those curtains will be drawn back, you will see the reality of your situation. That you wasted your life, running after, trying to amass and gather those things, and you lost sight of what was more important and more crucial. But now you will know as you come into your graves. Then, ثُمَّ كَلَّا سَوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ Because we're taking the two verses together. ثُمَّ كَلَّا سَوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ Then, know indeed, you will come to know. Right? The, again, we have a repetition here. Right? We have the repetition of the same verse, more or less twice. Is the repetition just for emphasis? Meaning that it doesn't add anything new in terms of meaning. It's referring to exactly the same thing. But Allah repeated it for the same meaning. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come on to that. Right. Give me a chance. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, is it the same meaning? And that is the position of some scholars of tafsir. That the two of them refer to the same thing. The second is only for tikrar uh, lil, it is a repetition for emphasis, to emphasize the first. Right, Al Hassan al-Basri, for example, rahimahullah ta'ala said, Hada wa'idun ba'da wa'id. it is a threat after a threat. Right? Meaning there is something which Allah Azzawajal does to emphasize the severity of the issue and the stark reality that will become known at that time. But Abdullah ibn Abbas and many of the scholars said no. They have added meanings. Right? And that's generally the rule of the Qur'an, that Allah Azzawajal doesn't just repeat something for no purpose and no reason. But always within the repetition, there is always an added meaning. or it is to do with something within the context. Right? So for example, even in uh, Surah Rahman, where Allah Azza wa says, It's repeated multiple times, right? over a dozen times within that single surah. Each one, even though the meaning of the verse remains the same, but its meaning is added and changed depending on the context of the verses after which Allah Azza is saying. So every two verses or every one verse or every couple of verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala interjects with this verse. It is pertinent to the context of those last couple of verses that are being spoken about, right? So it changes, adds something to the meaning depending on the context. So Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu said, the first one is for when people enter their graves. And the second, تعلمون, is when they will leave their graves and they will come to the land of resurrection. When they will be resurrected on yawmul qiyamah. ad dhahaq ta'ala said, uh, the first one, refers to the disbelievers, refers to the disbelievers. Whereas the second one, refers to the believers, refers to the believers. And Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin al-Shanqiti, rahim Allah Taala, in Adwa'ul Bayan, or the student rather, uh, you know, because I keep mentioning this, right, and it keeps getting confusing. So Adwa'ul Bayan, Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti is the author, Rahim Allah Ta'ala, but he only finished up to Surah Mujadala, which is the beginning of the 28th juz. So he did the vast majority of it, but the last three odd juz, he passed away, Rahman Ta'ala, before finishing his tafsir. So his student, Atiya Sarim is the one who completed that. But he obviously is his student and he rates from his teacher and his sheikh, and he's, he's mentioning his work. So when I say al as- I mean it in that kind of sense. Anyway, so he says in his tafsir, and the correct opinion is that there is no, it is not just repetition, meaning, is not just repetition for the sake of repetition. Because of what is reported the Ali said, رضي الله an, the companion, that the first is referring to the grave and the second is referring to Yom al Qiyama. And he continues, he commentates and he says, and that is understandable, meaning that it makes sense. And Imam Tabari said that the repetition is to increase the sense of danger and the threat of punishment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to cast fear into a person who's reading this. That this situation is so real and so dangerous that when a person comes to know it will be too late for them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions it twice. Ibn Atiyah Allah ta'ala said that Allah azza wa says, Kalla sofa to show a threat and punishment to people. And then he repeats the verse Kalla to show the importance of this issue and that each person has taken from it, meaning the scholars of tafsir have taken from it, what they consider to be the correct interpretation. So the first, and there are three opinions that I came across uh, regarding this. The first is that the first verse or verse number three, refers to entering into the grave. And the second one, "Thumma refers to leaving the grave or resurrection on the Day of Judgment as we mentioned, right, which is the opinion of Ibn Abbas عنهم, and the statement of Ali عن, seems to show that as well, or, or point towards that. The second opinion is the opinion of al dahaq that the first one, تعلمون, is referring to the disbelievers, and the second one, تعلمون, is referring to the believers. And the third opinion, which is the opinion of Al-Hassan Al-Basri and Muqatil, الله, is that the first one is at the time of death, and the second one is when they enter the grave. Right? So the first one is at the time of death that they will come to know its reality at the time of death. Because we know that at the time of death the person will come to know their reality. When their soul is being extracted from their body, when it's leaving their body. Right? And that's why Allah Azzawajal mentions in the Qur'an, ta'hzanu." بِالْجَنَّةِ الَّتِي كُنْتُمْ Indeed those who say our Lord is Allah and they remain steadfast upon that then the angels will descend upon them and they will say don't have fear nor despair and have glad tidings of the paradise that you were promised and that is at the time of death and that's why the Prophet ﷺ told us that tawbah isn't accepted once the soul begins to leave its body right? there's no tawbah then a person can't repent to Allah or return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And this is the opinion, the third opinion, that the first verse or the first time it's mentioned referring to death itself. And the second time that is mentioned is referring to the entering of the grave. Why those two? Because both times a reality comes upon that person. The first is the extraction of the soul and the reality of that situation. And the second is in the grave when a person is being questioned by the angels of the grave. The angels that will come to each one of us in their graves and will question them. This opinion therefore uh, is, as we said, the opinion of Al-Hassan and Al-Muqatil. And it's the opinion that Ibn qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, also supported. And he said for a number of reasons. He said, firstly, because as we've said, that the two have to have different meanings. Kalla sawfa thumma kalla sawfa He said have to have different meanings. They're not just repetition. So therefore, if they have different meanings, we have to understand what is the difference in meaning. Right? When is the first time they come to know, and what is the second time they come to know. So that's the first reason why he said that. The second reason he said, because of the word thumma. The word thumma means then. To show that it's not at the same time. If it was the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have said, كَلَّا wa kalla Or just, "Kalla But the fact that the thumma, the thumma means then which means that it's going to happen later, right, then or thereafter, right. And so it's not the same time, but one takes place, and then at some other time, another one will take place, another knowing or coming to know will take place. So he says that the Thumma is therefore also mentioned. He says, also because of the statement of Ali radiallahu anhu, what is reported that he said, that we we didn't believe or we didn't know of the punishment of the grave until Allah azza wa jal revealed this surah to us. حَتَّىٰ الْمَقَابِرُ right? And the fourth evidence he gives, he says, because this is mentioned within the hadith in the sunnah. Right? And he's referring to those hadith in which the Prophet wasallam spoke about the extraction of the soul at the time of death. Right? When a person passes away at the time of death. Now we assure that going to So the statement is that we continue to be doubtful concerning the punishment of the grave until Allah Azza wa Jal al-Hakum al takathur Yeah. So whether that means that the, he didn't know of it before and then once this this is the first mention of it in the Quran, whether it means that, that it's not something which but then there were obviously later on that we have many hadith in which the Prophet spoke about the punishment of the grave and so on. So Allahu A'lam, but it seems likely that this is speaking towards the beginning, right? That it's something which wasn't known amongst the companions until the revelation of these verses. But later on, there are many hadith that speak about the punishment of the grave and the torment from them. And other ones that we're, you know, that we're going to mention, for example, in the hadith in the sunnan, Ibn Qaym, rahimahullah is saying that it's mentioned in the sunnah, right? That's why there's a difference between the two. That the times in which it seems likely that this person will come to know is death and then the grave. Why not Qiyamah? So Ibn Abbas said, it's death and resurrection. Ali said death and resurrection. Ibn Qayyim says no. It's death, sorry, no, no. Ibn Abbas and Ali radiallahu anhu said, it is the grave and resurrection, right? They said, entering the grave, the first one, the second one is resurrection. But Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah and Al-Hasan al-Basri and these scholars, they say no. The first one is death, the second one is the grave. Why not resurrection? Why did they discount that? Why did they not? Because they already know uh, about it. No, but you could say the same thing about the grave, right? That a person by then will already come to know. Right, the question is, why did they discount that one? Anyone? Because that's after the barzakh. It is after the barzakh, but, and then, why those two, right? Why not, as Ibn Abbas said, The Grave and Resurrection. Okay, possibly. Yeah. So the reasoning he says actually is is very apparent, but it's sometimes one of the downfalls of studying tafsir in this way. What happens is when we study tafsir in this way, we isolate verses. You know, we only do one verse a week or two verses a week, and we forget the entirety of the surah. And it's important that you... Always keep that in mind because those verses have to be connected the to one another. The the grave. Not the visiting of the grave, but what will Allah Azza wa Jal speak about after these verses? سُوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ كَلَّا لَوْ تَعْلَمُونَ عِلْمَ الْيَقِينَ لَتَرَوُنَّ Allah says, and then you will have certain knowledge, you will see the fire. So he says, it's not that because Allah Azza wa mentions that explicitly later on. That knowledge is mentioned by Allah Azza wa Jal explicitly later on in the verses in the same surah. Right? And that shows you, you know, that's like a, a very uh, high level of understanding, right? That these scholars, rahimahullah, had that they were able to look at that. And he says, no. So therefore, it seems to be more the case that Allah Azza wa is referring to death and the grave. Because Allah Azza wa will openly mention the hereafter anyway in the next coming verses. Allah will say that you will see the punishment of the fire. So that knowledge Allah speaks about as certain knowledge on the day of judgment. So therefore he says that's why these are the two that, that Allah is referring to primarily here. Death and then the grave. You don't look convinced. Because in the grave you piece of the hell by Yeah. You will. So the question here is, no doubt, all three of them a person will come to know. Death, the grave and resurrection. All three a person will come to know. The question here is when Allah says, "Kalla kalla which two is it referring to? So it's not negating that a person doesn't know before or after. He knows in all three. The question just here is, in these two verses, which two are being referred to? right? And that's why you have that difference of opinion. Ibn al-Qayyim says, because the resurrection is mentioned explicitly anyway, therefore, you know, the other two are the ones that are being referred to. Right? So it's not about negating or saying that the person doesn't know or anything like that. It's just looking at the tafsir and finding the meaning of of, of what is the uh, implicit meaning. Because Allah Azzawajah doesn't explicitly state what knowledge that person will have. Right? Allah just says they will come to know. And then they will come to know. So he mentions for example the hadith of. You know, as evidences for this that a person will come to know. The hadith of uh, Uthman radiallahu anhu. Uh, or the statement of Uthman radiallahu anhu. Which is uh, narrated by his, his, uh, one of his servants Hanin. He says that Uthman عنه, when he would enter into the grave, he would think and he would stop and he would cry. So I would say to him, O oh Uthman, people mention to you paradise and the half fire and you never shed it here. But when you come to the graveyard, you cry. He says, because, he said in reply, he said because I heard the Prophet say, وسلم, Indeed, the grave is the first stage from the stages of the hereafter. Whoever is successful in it, everything after it will become easy. And whoever is ins- unsuccessful in it, everything after, will become difficult. And the hadith in the Sunan, the Prophet said, وسلم, I never saw anything. I never saw a single thing except that the punishment of the grave is worse than it. Wasn't shown anything except that I saw the punishment of the grave being worse than it. Right? And you have that long hadith of al Bara' Ibn Azib, in the Muslim Ibn Muhammad, which the Prophet sallallahu went through a very long description of how the angels come and they extract the soul of the believer and the disbeliever, right? Take the soul of the believer and take the soul of the disbeliever. How the angels come at the time of death and they wait and they bring the shroud, for example, for the believer, the shroud of Jannah and the, and the musk of Jannah and the, and the perfume of Jannah. And they wait and when they extract the soul, they take it and it's as smooth as a drop of water that comes from a cup. That's how smoothly it is extracted and not even a, an eye blink or not even the blink of an eye passes except that they shroud that soul and they perfume, perfume that soul so that it has the most amazing scent and then the angel will take that soul towards the heavens and they don't pass by a company or group of angels except that they will smell that scent and they will say who is this that brings this beautiful scent? And the angel that is accompanying the soul will mention the person's names by the best and most beautiful names that they were known by in this life. And they will come to the first heaven. And they will seek permission to enter. The angel will seek permission to enter. And it will be open for them and it will be welcomed. And every time they go through one of the levels of, of the heavens, one of the seven heavens, it will be opened, the gates open for them and they will be welcomed until it comes to the seventh heaven. And Allah Azza wa will say, write for this person His record in the illiyyin, right? In the record of the righteous. And take him back to earth. Because that is where they were created from. And that's where I will return them. And that's where they will come once again. So that soul will be taken back into the earth, right? They will be placed back into their grave. And that is when the angel will come. The angels will come and they will say, Who is your Lord? And what is your religion? And who is this man that was sent to you? And that person will reply, my Lord is Allah. My religion was Islam. And the man who came to me was the Prophet sallallahu And then Allah azza wa jalla will say, open for him a gate from the gates of Jannah. Let him take from its scent and let him take from its na'im, from its blessings and from its comforts and from its delights. And then that person will see a person who will come and give them glad tidings. Glad tidings, a person who is extremely beautiful, a face that is illuminated, that is beautiful. And that person will give them glad tidings of what they did and what they earned. So the person in the grave will say, who are you? Because you're a person who looks like you only bring good news. He say, "He will say, I am your good deeds. The deeds that you did, I am your good deeds. And so the, prophets, the Prophet ﷺ said that that man will say, "Oh Allah, establish the hour. Oh Allah, establish the hour. And then you have the other narration of the man who is from the disbelievers. That the angel will come with that foul shroud of half with the foul odor of how fire and that soul will be extracted and you won't want to leave the body the prophet described it as a rake or a hook that's pulled through wet wool it's extracted with force and it comes out very difficultly and with great pain but as soon as it's taken out a an eye blink doesn't pass except that it's shrouded with that foul shroud and perfumed in that foul odor and it doesn't pass by a group of angels except that they say what is that foul odor and the worst of names that that person was known by will be mentioned. That this is so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. In the worst manner and the worst description that that person had. Until they come to the first heaven and they will seek permission to enter, but that permission will not be given. They will be rejected. And the Prophet said, he recited the verse, The gates of heaven will never be opened for them. Nor will they enter into Jannah until the camel enters into the eye of the needle, meaning that it will never be the case. So they will be returned to their grave, and in their grave, the angel will come and will ask the same questions Who is your Lord? What is your religion? Who is that man who was sent to you? And that person will only reply, Ah, ah, meaning that they won't be able to express, they won't be able to give a, a, a clear answer. And so that person will be punished, their grave will be restricted upon them. And they will crush them. And a gate from the gates of the fire will be opened unto their grave. And they will see a person come to them that looks foul and ugly. And will strike fear into them. And that person will say, this is what you have. This is what you get for what you did in your dunya. And that person will say, who are you? You look like a person who only brings bad news. And he will say, I am your deeds. I am your actions that you performed in the dunya. And that man will say, oh Allah, never establish the hour, Never establish the hour. Right. That's a long hadith, hadith of Bara'a radiallahu a'am. Shaykh, uh, do, do all people get the same questioning in the grave? Allahu <laughs> a'am, it seems to say the case, the question is, do ev- does everyone get the same questioning in the grave? That seems to be the case. Is there not a question uh, just about um, who is your Lord, who is uh, Mr. Allah or Ali, does this question also therefore get asked to those before? Uh, okay, so the question is, does that, does, does that, so the question that asked in the grave isn't who was the Prophet right? It's who was this man that was sent to you, right? And so it's possible for those people who came before Islam, that is referring to their prophets, their messengers, whether they follow them, right? And we have also a hadith that say that the people that are between the fitrah, between the two prophets, uh, the people of the fatrah, as they're known, they have their own, uh, their own accounting on so, the Yom Al-Qiyamah. So the point is this, that this is one of the ahadith This is just some of the hadith that speak about this questioning of the grave. And so you have these stages. So in each one of them, the verses of the Quran show that a person at the time of death will come to know. They will know the reality of their situation. That veil is lifted. And then in the grave, that person in the life of the barzakh will come to know. That it will be lifted. That veil will be lifted. They will have certainty and knowledge. And then on Yomul qiyamah, a person will obviously know their state on that day as well. And so Allah Azza is saying, these are the times that they will come to know. Right? But for most people who don't pay heed and don't pay attention, then it is too late for them. Right? At the time of death, at the time of the grave, and at the time of the hereafter. And that's why Allah Azza says in the Quran, uh, but that the people will say, uh, Oh Allah Azza allow us to go back. The right? Ali صَالِحًا فِي مَا Allow us to go back to the life, perhaps we will do good deeds that we never did before. Allah says, Kalla. It will not be the case. Right? The same word is used, Kalla. Kalla meaning no, you can't go back, it's impossible. Or Kalla, some of the scholars said, meaning that even if you were to go back, you wouldn't have changed your ways. Right? Because the signs came to you, and Allah showed you His signs, and you had the Quran, and you uh, knew of Islam, and you knew what the Prophet ﷺ said. Didn't make a difference to you. And so it wouldn't make a difference either way. إِنَّهَا كَلِمَةٌ It is simply a word that they say. So this is the statement of uh, Ibn Qayyim ta'ala. So he says that the first one is referring to كَلَّا سَوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ is referring to death. ثُمَّ كَلَّا سَوْفَ is referring to the grave. And that's because the resurrection or the knowledge of, of Qiyamah and the Day of Judgment is going to be mentioned later on in the coming verses. Uh, so we have a question here from Lisa. last week you presented three opinions on the meaning of verse 2 what, which is the strongest or can we combine between all three and say that it refers to all three uh, it is so the, as we said the strongest opinion seems and Allah Azzawajan knows best uh, is the opinion that Ibn Kathir and others mentioned that it's referring to death itself referring to death itself because the verse is generic right, and it encompasses many people so when you restrict it to only remembering the dead within the graves, that's something specific to only people who have that type of feeling, right? So maybe the Arabs, for some of those Kabilas and tribes, they had that thing where they were impressed with their ancestors and they used to gloat about them and boast about them. But how many people do we know that actually do that? right? How many people today, even non-Muslims, that go on about you know, their forefathers and their ancestors in that way? And so you know, that's something which is very specific. The... The opinion that says that it's referring to constantly visiting the graves is also something which is very niche. Right? It's not something which you'll find everyone doing or many people doing. And so those tafaseer limit people, right? They limit it. And it's possible to say that that's secondary. That also from the meanings of there are people who do this because that is a form of distraction. But the primary meaning on Allah Azza wa knows best is that it refers to death itself. Because the verse is general. That these people are distracted from Allah. And so therefore, the second verse is general as well. Until they have death or they enter into their graves. And that encompasses everyone, it refers to everyone. And Allah Azzawajal knows best. Is there any recommended tafsir book that states reasons for verses being revealed and time period location of the revelation? Yeah, there are are books that have actually been written uh, upon this. Like just books, not even tafsir. I mean, it's mentioned generally in the books of tafsir. But there are books that have been authored just on Asbab al-Nuzul. Asbab al nuzul means causes of revelation. So you have uh, Asbab al Nuzur of Al Wahidi, and Asbab, there are a number of them, all with the same title, Asbab al nuzul which means causes of revelation. But some of those narrations will be authentic, some of them will be inauthentic. And sometimes those books don't really differentiate between the two. But there is uh, a, a, a book written by Sheikh Muqbil, ta'ala, uh, one of the scholars of Yemen, who passed away within the last 20 odd years he has a book in which he gathers what he considers to be the authentic narrations of asbab al-nuzul right so he has a book called sahih asbab al-nuzul the authentic compilation of the causes of revelation and he gathers those narrations and he does kind of like a hadith study on them and so on but there are there are many books no have any of these been translated no, not any of the ones that you mentioned <laughs> not any of the ones that i mentioned okay yeah, I don't think they're translated, but Ibn Kathir will mention them. So if you go to his tafsir, he often mentions cause of revelation, as do others. It's, so the books of tafsir won't mention them. They may not mention them necessarily in terms of, you know, the chain of narration and, and doing like that kind of study on them, but they will mention them in passing, that it's said that this verse is revealed because of A, B, C, and D, right? And so that's very common. But there are books, the point was, that, that have been authored just on this topic because of how important it is. Right? And Allah knows best. So moving on, verse number five, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, "Kalla law ta'alamuna al malyaqin. No indeed if only you knew for certain. Right? And again Allah Azza wa Jal is repeating a concept here now, three times. Kalla sofa ta'lamun, thumma kalla sofa ta'alamoun, kalla law ta'alamuna ilmalyaqin. Right, the whole concept of knowing and having knowledge is being repeated now for the third time. That if only you knew the reality, right? And that's something which you find throughout the Quran and even in the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu how Allah Azza says that he is telling us the reality of our situation, right? That the, this dunya is temporary, that it's finite, that it's not important to Allah Azza What is important is that you worship Allah, that you have iman, that you do righteous deeds, that you work for the next life and the akhirah. But despite all of that knowledge and all of that information, the dunya and its trappings, and its adornments, and its beautifications, and its enjoyments are so tempting that they lead so many people away and they distract them. And it's so difficult to keep reminding yourself and keep coming back and turning back to Allah Azza wa Jalla, or keep being able to keep realigning your priorities and understanding what is important and what is less important. Not that it may not be not important, but that there is something which is more important and something which is less important. Right. And so Allah is saying for the third time you will come to know. Yeah, Kaleem. Yeah. Has it? Check that out, man. So there you go. Where did you find that? Uh, okay. so com. okay. So who's, who's the translated by? Does it say? It doesn't say. Basically, Authentic Causes of Revelation. Yeah. I mean, it's a good book. It's a, it's a good book because it is something which, um, you know, speaks like to the authentic re- uh, narrations. Um, yeah, so it's it's worth looking into. So that's translated into English. The, what was the title again? Mm-hmm. The Authentic Causes of? The Authentic Musnad of Reasons for Descending of Revelation. The Authentic Musnad of Reasons of? The descending of revelation. Right? Okay. But anyway, the, the book is by Sheikh Muqbil al- Ibn Hadi, Rahimallah Ta'ala, was from the scholars of Yemen who passed away, I think, nearly some odd 20 years ago or so. So Allah جل, as we were saying, three times now he comes to this issue of knowing and having knowledge, right? Of knowing the certainty of your situation. Right? And that is because one of those past nations that came that Allah Azza mentions in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Be it Nuh with his people, or Hud, or Salih, or Lut, or Shu'ib, or Musa with Pharaoh, uh, or any of those prophets, and their nations and their peoples that they came with, that they came to. And how those people rejected them and denied them, and, and called them liars and sorcerers and magicians and so on. All of those people, when Allah azza wa causes their punishment to descend upon them, came to know the reality of their situation, right? They knew what was true and what wasn't, right? Who was in the right and who was in the wrong. But by then it's too late, right? By then they have squandered that opportunity and it is too late for them now to turn back to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla is warning us, don't be like those people who have allowed themselves to become so distracted by the dunya that the only time that they will remember is at a time when it is too late for them to do anything. And that is the only to do with death. But it is to use even the, ch- the opportunity of time that you have now, right? The time that Allah Azza wa Jal has given you, right? And that's why we'll come, you know, in the, in the last verse when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Thumma yawma idhin anil na'im. And then on that day, meaning on the day of judgment, you will be asked about the blessings that Allah gave to you. Some of the scholars of tafsir said the blessing refers to free time and health, right? Because as the Prophet said in the hadith, right? Two blessings most people are negligent of good health and free time right? that's also from the blessings that you asked about it's something which you allow yourself to be distracted from so that when you have the health and the ability to worship Allah and the physical power and strength to worship Allah to spend your nights praying to spend your days fasting to give in charity because you have wealth and you have money and Allah's made it financially easy for you you don't use it in those ways And then when it's too late and it's gone past that time and now you're old and it's difficult for you and you don't have that same strength and physically you've become weak and fragile and and infirm, now you want to stand the night in prayer, right? And now you want to, for example, start fasting. And you've wasted that opportunity that you had, right? And the same goes with free time as well, right? And that's why, you know, this common thing that used to be, Alhamdulillah, it's like changed a lot now. It's not so common now, but it's still somewhat like you still find it in some places this concept that Hajj should only be performed when you're old in age right? I remember when I was young that seemed very common right? The only people that used to go on Hajj were people in their like 60s and 70s and 80s right? Even from like family members, you don't go on Hajj unless you're like nearing retirement age right? And I very clearly remember very clearly remember people saying oh I'm interested in going Hajj and the person may be 20 and 30 and people are like, why are you going to go now, right? Go when you're 60, 70, because when you go for hajj, Allah forgives all your sins. You go now, you know, you've got 30, 40 years of sins again that you're going to like. Go when you're 70 or something, then go and make hajj and, you know, inshallah, Allah forgives all your sins. That was the concept that people had. It's obviously a, a crazy thought and a, and a crazy concept to have. But the point is that that's how people used to think, right? Why are you going to enjoy life when you can Unless when you're 50, 60 and you've got nothing left to do and you have no strength left, then you spend your time thinking about Allah and worshipping him. But the point is that I've seen with my own eyes, when you go for hajj, people who have waited, and maybe they have some of the valid excuses, but some of them I don't think do, they have wealth, mashallah, and they had money, and now they're at the age where they find it difficult to walk, right? difficult to even get up and move and mobility issues and so on. How much are you going to enjoy of your hajj when your worry is about your medication and your health and the crowds and this and you're so weak that you depend on two or three other people coming to help you and take you and move you and so on. It is a very difficult situation to be in, right? And what kind of hajj do you experience then, right? And that's why it is important even for us, for our children from a young age, right? The hadith of the Prophet from the people that Allah will give shade to Washabun, Nasha fi ta'atillah A young person who grows up in the obedience of Allah Azzawajal. Why? Because you get used to, in the prime of your health, worshipping Allah, right? Praying the night prayer, going to the masjid, fasting, you know, those types of actions. And I don't just mean the obligatory, I mean the voluntary actions as well, in terms of doing that, right? The beautiful hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas, رضي الله عنهما, before I forget. Right? Uh, the hadith of Maymuna, when he goes to the house of his aunt, Maymuna رضي الله عنها, who is the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, and he spends the night in prayer with the Prophet. He right? wakes up and he's young in age, 9, 10, 11. And he spends the night awake in salah, in tahajjud, praying alongside the Prophet. ﷺ. But the beautiful thing about that narration is he says that as the Prophet ﷺ was praying, he would wipe over my head and he would pinch my ear. right? And this is in salah, right? and you know, generally in salah, you can't move and you can't do that kind of stuff. But in the optional prayer, why is the Prophet ﷺ doing this to him? Because he's tired, right? He's ten, like he's ten years old. It's probably two, three a.m., right? He's tired. He's sleepy. You know, everyone like that has, knows anyone in that age group knows how quickly they become bored and tired, right? Their attention spans only like half an hour. After that, it's difficult for them. But the Prophet is encouraging him, right? He wants him to continue. Don't give up, right? And that's look at the concept and how it's different from us today, or many of us. When, you know, you, you take your kid to Taraweeh in the masjid, and after the first rock, he's like, I'm done, I'm spent. And you're like, okay, go over then go to sleep. Right? Go, go and sit down at the back and just rest. Right? And, okay, fine, he's going to go and he's going to rest. But look at how the Prophet doesn't train them in that way. He right? doesn't want him to get used to the concept that you get tired after one rock, you just go and sit down. How do you build up your stamina in ibadah? Right? How do you get that kind of ability to go that long period and, and do that kind of ibadah? it's because you train yourself to do it, right, from a young age. So a young age, you know, like sometimes you find people that find it difficult now in Salah to sit down, right? Find it difficult to sit in the shahud. Because they've never trained from a young age that their legs should sit in such a way. They've only ever sat on a chair. Very difficult for them, right? You see people that pray sometimes in their 30s, 40s, they find it difficult to do so, right? Because it's not something which they train themselves to do. Islam tells us to train from a young age and to encourage and motivate and to build stamina for da'wah. Right? Just like you have stamina for the gym or you have stamina for whatever else it is, work and so on. You need to build stamina for ibadah. Right? Ibadah requires stamina. Requires you training your body to pray. And so today, okay, you only stand for 20 minutes, but tomorrow 30 minutes, and then 40 minutes, and then 50 minutes. And not just the whole salah, but even in a single rakah. Right? As the Prophet wasallam used to do, we need to prolong his recitation. and the general sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ in his salah is that he would only complete a surah. It wasn't his sunnah, his general practice isn't that he would only recite passages or verses from here or verses from there, be that in the congregational salah or be that in his tahajjud. Only a very few narrations you find that he repeated one verse the whole night or that he recited a passage from here or a few verses from there. That is, The exception to the rule, the vast majority of the hadith that have been narrated to us, be that in Fajr or Maghrib or Isha, or be that in his tahajjud, is that he would finish his surah. And that's why, what does the narration say when he starts Baqarah, what does he do? He finishes Baqarah, right? It's not like I'm going to do three pages and then that's it, that's tahajjud done. He will finish and that's stamina, right? Building the type of stamina. And sometimes when one of the companions is praying alongside him, the Prophet doesn't think I'm going to shorten it today because Hudayfah is here, or Abdullah bin Mas'ud's here, and it's long for them. Right? The Hadith of Hudayfah, the famous Hadith where he recites Baqarah, Al Imran, and Nisa in a single rakaah. Doesn't think I'm going to make it shorter for him because he's building within them stamina to do ibadah. Anyone that can do that in a single rakaah can do a juz in eight the next day. Right? That's like a walk in the park then. Right? That's like, you know, I'll take that any day. Right? And so you build that type of stamina. When you don't build that stamina within yourself or within your children, you find it very difficult. Right? The Quran, right? you find those narrations amongst the Salaf, they would read five juz a day, ten juz a day. Some of them finish the whole Quran a day, right? especially in Ramadan. How do you do that? Right? It's difficult for us to even understand how within the period of 24 hours, you would even physically do that. Even if you weren't working, even if you took off the whole day from work and you had no other jobs to do, just being able to sit there and read the Qur'an cover to cover or read ten juz right, in a single day, it is something which requires so much stamina. Right? It requires strength and it requires an inner type of, and a mental type of strength and a spiritual type of strength. Right? And that's why the Prophet encourages us to make things like adhkar. Because dhikr is something which gives your body strength. Gives you the ability to worship Allah Azza wa Jal more. And that's why the Prophet would often make dhikr after his salah. Because after the salah you make dhikr, what do you do after that? There's another salah for you to pray, right? You're going to pray your sunnas. You're going to pray nafl prayers. You're going to pray the winter prayer if it's after isha and so on. If it's in the morning, you're going to pray duha. And dhikr is something the morning adhkar, the evening adhkar, the adhkar After salah is something which gives you the type of strength. So the Prophet needs to build that stamina. Within his, within his companions you right? had a question a long time ago <laughs> no that's alright uh, so yeah so the, the point here is that Allah Azzawajal is therefore telling us that we you know we realize this stuff when, when we don't have the strength anymore and we don't have the free time we've lost all our money or we've spent all our money or we have other demands on all of those needs then now it's too little too late for us Right, and so the concept of the Sharia, Allah جل, is referring to us three times in the surah. Right, Allah Almighty only repeats something more than once if it is extremely important, and then for Allah Almighty to repeat something three times in three verses right next to each other, right? one after the other after the other, is to show the importance of this issue, right? of how people are heedless and unless they switch on and they remember and they turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, life will pass by in the blink of an eye, right? Just like many of us, you know, now, I feel old, right? And I'm sure all of you feel old, right? Anyone here that doesn't feel old? You feel old because, and not necessarily because you are old, not necessarily because you're in your 70s or 80s, but because you see how quickly life has gone, right? When you were like 10, 11, you were like, I have my whole life ahead of me. And now you're like, you know, towards midlife. And you think, subhanAllah, where did all that time go? What did I do? What did I achieve? And then you hear the stories of the scholars like an Imam al-Nawi, rahimahullah, and others, age of 45, Imam Shafi'i, age of 50, others pass away, and look what they left behind in terms of a legacy, right? in terms of the people that benefited from them. Right? That's what they did, right? Because of, of how eager they were in terms of using the skills that Allah Azza wa Jalla has given to them and bestowed upon them. Okay, any, any questions? We'll leave the tafsir of this first for, um, for next week inshallah ta'ala, so inshallah, yeah, sorry, um, no problem. About, uh, Say that again, sorry? Sorry, uh, the question is on interest. Interest. Yeah, more than that. Okay. So if your work has interest related to it, uses riba? It depends, so if it's something which, uh, so in terms of like riba in the workplace, it really depends on how much and, and what kind of role it is. If it is something where it's an integral part of the role, then that's something which you need to, to find a way out of as soon as you can. Because the Prophet ﷺ cursed a number of people when it came to riba, and from them are the people who are witnesses to it, and the people who write the contract. So it's not just the people who take the loan or give, the interest loan, it is everyone who's related to that, right? It was, is within that, uh, that kind of framework. If it's, however, something which is not really part of your job, but it's something which may occur, right, every so often. It may just happen because it's something which comes up as something that happens, but it's not the actual job itself. It's not an interest-based job. It's not, you know, working, for example, for an insurance company or something. Then, in that case, inshallah, it's okay. But what I would recommend is that you give sadaqa. Whenever you feel, for example, that you have something that you doubt for, the Prophet told us that sadaqah purifies wealth. So, whenever there's some doubt, you give sadaqah. And inshallah, that purifies your wealth. Barakallahu fiqum. Wa salallahu wa muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'i. mission do I press? The stop button.